morning and welcome to the Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I want to thank everyone for coming in and braving the uh, Kiev-like weather this morning in March. Uh, we at Hudson are, are very pleased to welcome all of you today uh, to launch an important uh, new paper that has already gotten significant attention by Richard Gowan called can the United Nations unite Ukraine about the potential for creating a successful UN peacekeeping mission in Ukraine's Donbass region, which has been occupied, as we all know, by Russian-backed fighters since spring 2014. Both President uh, Putin of Russia and President Poroshenko of Ukraine have mentioned such a possibility. And Richard, who is uh, among, if not the foremost expert on United Nations peacekeeping efforts, uh, certainly one of the most uh, notable, has taken a deep dive into how this issue might come to fruition, as well as looking at ways uh, to handle some of the potential future problems that peacekeepers might face. Now, Richard Gallen is, is, as I noted, a foremost expert on the United Nations and its peacekeeping efforts. He's a fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and he teaches conflict resolution at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And he'll be joined, uh, he is here to my immediate right, and he will be joined on this distinguished panel by three other individuals. Ambassador Kurt Volk, well, actually, let me go in order where people are seated. Uh, uh, Lyndon Allen, uh, who is a senior associate in Baker McKenzie's Washington office. He's known for his extensive experience in Eastern Europe, where he worked with the OSCE on Transnistrian conflict uh, settlement, uh, and also helped the process, that is, and also helped establish the OSCE special monitoring mission to Ukraine. Ambassador Kurt Volker, who really needs no introduction. He's the special U.S. representative for Ukraine negotiations and the executive director of the McCain Institute for International Leadership. Kurt is a, a diplomat par excellence, someone who brings a deep strategic understanding to his work, which is why President Trump, Secretary Tillerson have entrusted him with the Ukraine negotiations and why Senator McCain has entrusted him with the organization he views as his legacy. And we're really grateful to you, Kurt, for making time in your busy schedule to be with us today. Lastly, uh, Hannah Thoburn, a research fellow here at Hudson who covers Russia and Ukraine, will moderate the discussion. Hannah uh, also brings great uh, insight uh, and has a long bibliography on these issues. Again, I want to thank all of you for being here. I want to thank all of our panelists. And now I will turn it over to Hannah. Thank you, Ken, and thanks to all of you for braving uh, the, the wind and the weather and the government shutdown to, to come here this morning and listen to us uh, opine about what I think is a really important topic and something that, you know, we, we've had this conflict now in, in Ukraine for nearly four years, and we've gone through Minsk one, Minsk two, and things have seemed to really, to really quiet down, what do we do now with the, the problem that is Donbass? How do we move forward? How do we talk about reintegrating Donbass with Ukraine and ending the conflict there? Richard Gowan, as Ken said, has written a really terrific paper, uh, and you can find this paper on, on the Hudson website uh, for download. And, and he, in it, I think, Richard, you really get into some of the nitty gritty. How could this proposal that both Putin and Poroshenko have, have put out there, how could this potentially work? What are some of the stumbling blocks, some of the potential successes, and what are some of the for, you know, past UN experiences that can really inform any kind of mission, 
any kind of peacekeeping mission that we might see in Donbass. So I'm going to turn it over uh, first to Richard, who's going to give a short presentation of his paper, and then we'll move into our discussion. Richard? Um, thank you very much, Hannah, and um, thank you to the Institute for uh, publishing this, this paper. Um, it was a great pleasure working especially with you, uh, Hannah, to bring this to fruition. Um, it's actually almost exactly six months since the seed of the study was planted, um, because it was back in the first days of September that President Putin indicated, to general surprise, that he might be open to some sort of UN force in the Donbass. And since then, there has been a great deal of discussion of this possibility, but the majority of the discussion has been at the political level. We've been talking about the overall strategic framework for a peacekeeping force, and we've been wondering whether you can reach the necessary level of trust uh, to make a force possible. What we tried to do in this paper is look at the operational dimension of a peacekeeping force. Because even if it was possible to get political agreement on a peace operation in Ukraine, there are still reasons to worry about how it would work on the ground. The history of peacekeeping in Europe is not exactly a story of one success after another. We still have UN peacekeepers in Cyprus who were deployed in the 1960s. We all remember the failures of the early 1990s in Bosnia. And I have to say that a lot of European military men and also actually UN officials are very nervous about the idea of doing anything in the Donbass. And they worry that it could turn into a quagmire. So what I try and do in the paper is look beyond the politics, although that is hard, and ask whether an operation could actually work on the ground. Now, as Hannah says, there's a lot of nitty-gritty in there. And this is a paper that will delight those of you who are connoisseurs of multilateral planning formats and care about helicopters. I'm not going to go into all the details right now. I'm just going to look at um, five <clears throat> basic criteria for a successful peacekeeping operation in Ukraine. These are also five criteria that I, um, I wrote about in a piece in the Washington Post yesterday. My argument is that to get a successful operation in the Donbass, you need these things. A genuine bargain with Russia, a credible military presence, a strong police presence, a long-term civilian presence, and lastly, a supportive Ukraine. Let's just go through those quickly. We have to start by saying that no peace operation in Ukraine will work if there is not real Russian will to make it work. And that's something, Kurt, that you have said, and I think that we just have to start with that as a fact. Um, there needs to be a real agreement through the Security Council on what a force would look like. We've seen a lot of gamesmanship in the Council um, between the US and Russia over Syrian resolutions. We can't afford that in the Ukrainian case. We need to see Russia withdraw its personnel, its weapons, and its mercenaries from the Donbass. And it's very important that Russia does not give any support to covert insurgent actions once the peacekeepers get on the ground. These are the basic requirements for a force to work. 
Now, some of you will look at that and say, well, that was great. I'm just going to go and get some more coffee and leave, because right now the politics does not look very promising. Others of you will look at this and say, well, if Russia was really willing to make all these concessions, why would you need a peace operation at all? Surely it would be possible um, simply to end the conflict bilaterally. Now, I don't think that is true. Um, even if Russia made a positive and genuine contribution to um, finishing the conflict in the Donbass, there would still be a huge amount of public disorder and confusion on the ground, and there would still be spoiler groups, members of the current um, separatist forces, who would keep on looking to make trouble. You would need an international peacekeeping presence to restore order in a highly, highly contentious environment. To make that work, you would need a credible military presence. Some analysts say that that could be 50,000 troops. I think that looking at previous missions, 20,000 troops would be able to manage um, the main tasks in eastern Ukraine if the political environment was sufficiently permissive. The tasks would include monitoring the border with Russia to reassure Kiev, um, cantoning separatist weaponry and personnel, and using limited force to protect civilians and ensure that the peace process worked. By limited force, I don't mean a full-scale counterinsurgency, but I do mean robust actions to put down um, upsurges of violence or terrorist acts. It will not be easy to get together even 20,000 troops for this, because we must assume that Russia would reject um, most major NATO nations. Um, most analysts who have looked at this believe that the core of the mission would have to be non-NATO European countries, and probably Sweden um, is the likeliest leader uh, of such an operation. Sweden has in indicated some interest. Finland has indicated interest. But in addition to those guys, you might need to pull together a quite unusual force um, with troops from as far apart as Latin America, um, where there is a strong peacekeeping tradition, and even Mongolia, who actually um, have some of the best peacekeepers uh, that we've seen from outside Europe. I can go into the details of the force contributors if you would like me to. In addition to the troops, you need police. Regular military um, forces are not good at handling public disorder. There will be a lot of public disorder in the scenario we're describing. So I think that you would need two to 4,000 police, um, both to do direct riot control and to work with uh, local police forces under the framework of the Minsk Agreement. And you will need a large civilian presence too. And the civilian presence could be there for decades. In the first instance, the role of the civilians would be to enable elections, which were provided for in the Minsk Accords as the basis for a political settlement. I'm not too worried about those in technical terms. The UN is pretty good at running elections. It's run elections in Afghanistan. It's run elections in the Congo, which is the size of Europe. It can manage the technical aspects of elections in Ukraine. But there would be a lot of risk, and I suspect a lot of disorder again, around those polls. More generally, um, the peace operation would need not to provide a full transitional government in the Donbass, but to work very, very closely with the Ukrainian authorities on bringing the region back under Kiev's authority, monitoring human rights, and creating a sense that this is a fair process. And that leads to my last criterion for a successful operation, which is that it's not just Russia that needs to support it, it's Ukraine. Just 
Ukraine needs to give genuine democratic support to a peace operation that is based on reconciling the people of the Donbass with Kiev. There's a lot of talk in Kiev at the moment about revenge, about prosecuting people who've worked for the um, authorities. That, unfortunately, is not the basis for a sustainable operation. There's a need for compromise. Thank you very much, Richard. We're now going to turn to Ambassador Kurt Volker for his response uh, to the paper, to Richard's presentation, and then we'll move on to Lyndon Allen. Ambassador Volker. Well, thank you very much. And uh, congratulations, Richard, on a terrific paper, because it really does flesh out in a public format a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And uh, it focuses very much on the, the nuts and bolts. How do you do this? I'd like to add a few points of context and a few additional ideas around this. Um, and thank you again for hosting us here. I have to say it's a, a unique day in Washington Isn't it? where the government is shut down by cold air. Uh, <laughs> uh, normally, it's hot air that does that. <laughs> so uh, a unique day. Um, first off, uh, I want to describe the difference between what Richard described and the Russian proposal in September. Um, what Richard described is a genuine peacekeeping force, and one that establishes area security throughout the Donbass, facilitates the containment of heavy weapons, and controls the Ukrainian side of the Ukraine-Russia international border. That is very, very different from what Russia proposed in September. What Russia proposed was a UN protection force, uh, which could be UNPROFOR acronym, I suppose. Um, and this UN Protection Force would be there to only to protect the OSCE monitors. And the original proposal was that it would only act on the ceasefire line, uh, which would effectively entrench and deepen the division of the country between the Donbass and the rest of Ukraine. Um, and that was, I think, an intentional proposal to, to come up with that. But we've had four conversations. I've had four conversations with my Russian counterpart. First two were very constructive and exploratory. The third one in November was very much retreating to that line that they took in September. And most recently in January, again, very exploratory and looking at how can we get to a substantial, serious peacekeeping force similar to what Richard described. That's kind of the state of play there. Um, one of the things that um, Richard, I think, correctly emphasized is that if Russia makes a political decision to get out of the Donbas, and let's be clear, this is a 100% Russian command and controlled operation, militarily, politically, economically, there's no ambiguity about it. Uh, if they decide, however, to get out, there is a need for a peacekeeping force to come in for a variety of reasons. Uh, the, the practical security measures on the ground that Richard described, but also for political reasons. Uh, it is very important, I would argue, for Russia that it not be Ukrainian forces rushing in behind Russian forces, um, and that there be a guarantee that the Minsk agreements will be implemented. Uh, so that you will have local elections, amnesty, special status, recent Ukraine, as has already been agreed. But you need a mechanism to facilitate that. Um, would Russia ever agree to do this? I, I, that's what we're waiting to see. 
the argument um, that we've presented is that uh, Russia's not getting anything out of this. Uh, if it was hoping to produce a Russia-friendly government in Kiev again, it's not working. Uh, it has actually produced a more unified, more nationalist, more westward-oriented Ukraine than has ever existed before, and it has completely lost the younger generation of Ukrainians. So this, this is not working for Russia. And in addition to that, it's paying a very high cost which is sanctions from the United States, sanctions from the European Union, no relationship with the United States, no relationship with the EU, fractured relationship with most European countries, the cost of the civilian operation, the cost of the military operation, the casualties that Russian soldiers face there, the reputational damage to Russia, and the inability to move forward on issues. And this, I think, there, even though it serves a nationalist mobilization narrative inside Russia, to be there. I think there are a lot of people in Russia who are negatively affected by this, and I think that there is a reason why Russia might choose to wish to get out. And I, and I put it that way, choose to get out, uh, make a decision, because this is not about trust, and it's not about compromise. It's about the, uh, the West and Russia having fundamentally different goals, but perhaps agreeing that certain steps would be in all of our interest. And that's what we're trying to get to. Um, the concern Richard referenced about this being a UN peacekeeping force that results in a quagmire is a concern that I've heard expressed in many places. Uh, I don't see that as a substantial risk. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, UN peacekeeping forces have become quagmires when they have been put in the position of being an interpositional force with no settlement. Uh, such as in Cyprus, which is, what, I don't know, 40 years now, something like that, 35. Um, here we have a situation where we already have an agreement, which is the Minsk agreement. Uh, what we don't have is a means of implementing it. And what we hope is that a peacekeeping force would be a means of implementing that agreement, where you see it as a transition from Russian control today to UN control during an interim period where local elections are organized and held, where there's security, where amnesty is granted to people who committed crimes as part of the conflict, uh, where special status is cemented, and then transitioning to Ukrainian control. Uh, the timelines have yet to be really nailed as to how long it would take, but a rough concept, would, it might take from the period in which we have a political agreement to the deployment of UN peacekeeping force several months, might take another six months to organize local elections. From the point elections take place and they're validated as free and fair, the transition begins. Uh, um, I, I want to also uh, add an element to what Richard has said. We, we should not forget the important role already being played by the OSCE and the capacity that the OSCE can bring. Uh, the OSCE, I don't think, is anyone's choice, would ever be anyone's choice for a peacekeeping force. However, it would probably be the organization of choice for organizing elections in Europe. Um, so you would have local elections organized and administered through the OSCE, and then the uh, Office of Democratic Institutions and Human Rights would probably be the organization of choice for validating elections. Uh, in addition to that, the OSCE has a very good track record in uh, police training and oversight. 
So um, whereas uh, one of the things Richard suggests is a UN peace, uh, police presence of two to 4,000, uh, it might be that local police who are doing their normal daily jobs effectively even today uh, could remain as local police and you would want just to surround them with some form of international connectivity, oversight, and training. Um, and that could be done through the OSCE. Uh, we had a very successful effort at police training and oversight in Kosovo through the KPS. And a number of countries in the OSCE have volunteered, politically at least, to say they would be interested in, in helping in, in that way if they could. Um, as to the possible use of NATO forces, um, we have not had any serious conversation with Russia about countries that would compose a peacekeeping force. Um, but I would say it is certainly our assumption that that list of countries could not include Russia, could not include Ukraine. Um, I think Russia would insist it could not include the United States. Um, but we haven't talked about others. And I think there would likely be some interest on Russia's part of having a CSTO country or two involved, uh, such as Kazakhstan, for example, which is not out of the question. Um, but then that, I think, also opens the door. Well, there have got to be some NATO countries that would be acceptable to Russia as well. And there are certainly countries that are uh, capable military actors who have experience in peacekeeping who are not members of NATO, such as uh, Sweden or Finland, that I think would be great potential contributors uh, if such a force was to be agreed. So I think the key thing is that we are waiting to hear from Russia on its ideas of how staging a peacekeeping force would work. A critical element in uh, what we're looking for is no incremental decision-making. And let me describe that. We assume that a peacekeeping force cannot deploy throughout the entire area in a single day just not physically going to happen that way. You'll have to stage it in phases. <clears throat> Might start with the ceasefire line, get to a wide swathe of territory, get to urban areas, get to the border, something like that. Um, and you could imagine that the peacekeeping force is not capable of fulfilling the broadest possible mandate until it is fully deployed. So you could imagine a growth of the mandate over time rather than starting with an absolute mandate from the beginning. So a, an escalation of the peacekeeping force, if you will. Um, but what we can't have is decision-making along the way, where at each step of growth, you have to renegotiate, recheck, get something new happening. We have to see this as a package from start to finish and view it as a rolling deployment rather than as incremental steps in, in that fashion. And I think if we did that, there's a, there's a lot that we can talk about. So we're um, interested to receive Russia's thinking on this when they're ready to share. And uh, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. Thanks, Kurt. Lyndon. Great. Thanks. I'll just uh, join uh, Lester Volker in saying a great report. Um, I think it covered um, a, a great many details, which are often overlooked uh, in, in you know, examining uh, where wither Donbass and and so uh, and so I certainly commend you for that and thanks very much Hannah for the uh, for the invitation to to speak here today um, I'm going to say just a few things uh, which are going to be based on my experience of several years involved in the formal process uh, around Transnistria which 
uh, makes me think that things can take a long time and mm -hmm. quagmires cannot be excluded um, in, these, in these situations. Uh, and also based on my experience uh, in April of 2014, um, when there was an agreement that I noticed is not on the, uh, it wasn't really an agreement, but a joint statement that's not on the UN uh, website with the other Ukraine agreements called the Geneva Statement, uh, which some of you may remember from uh, 17 April of 2014 that talked about um, disarmament, deoccupying buildings, and amnesty. Um, I can just say that at that time, there was not a great deal of receptivity uh, among the folks who were uh, occupying some of the buildings in Donbass towards, uh, towards um, taking that deal. Um, so, and that, and that uh, brings me to my first point, which is that uh, we do have, I think, a recent um, public statement from the Russian side about how they would view uh, the possibility of a peacekeeping force extending all the way to the Russian-Ukrainian border. Um, if I'm not mistaken, a few days ago, um, around his meeting with, uh, with uh, uh, the Austrian, um, with Kurtz, uh, Putin, Putin remarked that, uh, yes, we could, we could consider that, but um, the um, uh, LNR and DNR uh, would have to be consulted because that's where they are. Um, so this is uh, a problem which seems like, often seems to people like it should be a small technical problem, but having dealt for years with um, unrecognized authorities' propensity to seek indicia of recognition at every possible step, um, I can only say that this is, this is something that um, people in Kiev will be justifiably wary of and which is sort of a minefield. Obviously, um, you know, folks in... Uh, UN Department of Peacekeeping are not unfamiliar with such issues, but um, <clears throat> I think I think uh, the way that uh, the way that these issues are injected into the media space um, in the context around Ukraine may be a little bit different from prior situations. So that's another point that I wanted to make: is the degree to which deploying a PKO in uh, in Donbas would be. I don't want to say unprecedented, but it's, and I'm not, certainly don't have your level of expertise on this, but I don't think there's ever been a force deployed in such a densely populated, industrialized um, area. Um, and so this, this presents different challenges. Um, it also could present some opportunities. So for example, um, you know, you talked about what do you put the uh, demobilized paramilitaries to work doing? Well, it's building roads or what have you. In Donbass, it could be environmental remediation. Um, because really the whole area, even before the conflict, was um, something like a Superfund site, uh, what we would consider in the U.S., and really was in need after, um, you know, starting in the 1930s, the Soviet sort of intensive uh, exploitation of the mineral resources. There really is a lot of, a lot of work to be done in, in that area. Um, but, the, but the point is, um, I think it's also um, maybe not, uh, again, not being an expert, so there may be counterexamples, but in terms of the level of organization of the paramilitaries there. Um, that's also something, I mean, you have um, entities claiming to be states, um, which have set up structures, um, you know, not without assistance in terms of capacity building and personnel. Um, how you seek to dismantle that without engaging um, in some kind of a recognizing way um, will, will be, will be an issue. Um, regarding the uh, countries uh, to be involved uh, in a potential PKO, um, 
I think it's important to note, uh, regardless of the level of what we believe about the level of Russian involvement, there are a couple of million people living in the space who do have their own agency and decisions to make. And um, what I can say is that even before um, the hot phase of the conflict, even in April of 2014, um, the population on the ground was not particularly receptive to people from Europe, broadly speaking. Um, so this is a population, in particular the ones who have remained, that has been conditioned and in a way has chosen to accept, um, in some cases, you know, certainly wouldn't envy the choice, um, you know, not, not having a lot of options. But um, they're not going to be receptive um, to people who are uh, representing NATO countries um, and who are representing the EU writ large. Now, that's a consequence of the information that they consume. Um, but I don't think we can simply say that's an illegitimate fact, therefore we don't accept that fact. It's a reality which the guys who are at the tip of the spear will encounter every single day when they interact with people. Um, and I know this because <laughs> we encountered it. Um, and and so, so I think that's it's really important to think about. And so you know, then Kazakhstan, Moldova, places where you have folks who know the culture, know the language, can, can walk around and interact with people in a way that says, hey, um, we're, we're actually here to do a good thing for you, uh, and we speak your language, and we're not somehow uh, you know, uh, suspicious to you because of things you've, things you've seen on Russian TV. Um, I, I think I, I would also note, this is sort of piggybacks on the <clears throat> prior points. The way that I try to explain uh, Donbass to Americans is that it's perhaps a bit like West Virginia. Um, so it's got a proud past in certain areas. I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's facile, um, but I think it's important to think about this, because if we think about how well integrated is West Virginia into coastal elite American thinking, um, it, it just, just as, as, as food for thought. Um, and actually, I won't even say any more on that. I'll just leave that. Um, so that's a little bit about the PKO itself. How do you get there uh, and, and sort of how do you actually deploy out? I would, I would just add to the, to the uh, excellent points Ambassador Volker made about the OSC that indeed um, there is substantial um, you know, police training and, and uh, capacity within the organization. Uh, it's also the case, uh, and, and, and um, I don't think the report mentioned this, that the OSC, I believe, still has a mission at two uh, Russian border checkpoints along the Russian-Ukrainian border. Now, um, not a very satisfying uh, mandate or uh, operational footprint, uh, to be sure, but it could be uh, a way to say, okay, perhaps uh, the Russian Federation doesn't want the UN PKO to come all the way up to the border. Maybe then that's something that the SMMU could do with more people along the border, if the goal is to have a monitoring or a tripwire or something. Anyway, um, obviously this is not an area where there are going to be um, easy solutions. Um, so that's how you get there. What does the PKO look like? What do you do then with the stability that the PKO is designed notionally to create? Um, it is true that, there's an, that there are agreements. Um, however, <clears throat> there's not a lot of consensus, uh, at least as I've been, wouldn't say that I've been down in the weeds of the 
process and the meetings uh, for, the, for the past period of time, but I, I think it's clear that there's not a lot of uh, consensus on the sequencing and the details of implementing um, Minsk. So there, will, there would have to be, I think, some clarity uh, in the initial uh, authorizing Security Council resolution about what's, you know, what's the plan once the PKO is deployed. Uh, and then there would have to be some, probably another difficult conversation about a format for any future uh, negotiations that have to be conducted on the matter of um, the contours of the special status. Um, so Transnistria, for example, there's been general consensus among all the international stakeholders involved, um, and certainly on the Moldovan side and from time to time on the Transnistrian side, that the end state should be a special status uh, for the territory within the Republic of Moldova. That consensus exists, um, but the negotiations on the details of that special status, who gets to license things, who gets to collect fees, uh, these are things that matter, especially in um, environments where people's political thinking is driven by having grown up in uh, a lot of scarcity and economic instability. Um, so your report does mention livelihood, making sure that people understand nobody's coming to take away their livelihood. That's vital. Um, and I would say that, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues here. And again, because this, is a, this, this was, you know, before the conflict, a industrialized, fairly developed place, there's issues that, that arise that aren't, that aren't going to be ones that are, where there's easy transferable solutions from the past. So um, how do you reintegrate uh, the financial system into the modern financial system? Banks, which may exist. How do you address privatization, um, you know, capture, takeover of large industrial assets? Um, all those matters are going to have to be discussed. And you mentioned that this, this is a great gathering for fans of multilateral um, uh, diplomacy and, and settlement. I myself am a fan. However, I would say that one of the weaknesses of it, uh, of, of such formats, certainly from the American point of view, is that they require really sustained, long-term, consistent approach, personnel who are on the file for a long time, who have continuity, who have historical memory, who, if things uh, cycle around and an issue comes back up again in a couple of years, they won't be able to be snowed by folks on the other side who have seen this, uh, you know, been to this rodeo before, so to speak. That's, that's something that's been a forte of the Russian Federation uh, in all of the protracted conflicts in the, in the region. And so I would just say we should expect that even if something like this goes forward, there would be s slowing down efforts and protracting efforts uh, at various stages driven you know, perhaps straight from the Kremlin, perhaps through feedback from people within the territories who are, um, you know, having various forms of influence uh, and, and, and um, are not interested in, in moving things uh, forward. Um, I, the final point I'll make about multilateral formats is that, you know, the reason that, the reason that they can take such a long time to get results is because it's sort of like... Um, what people say when they want to have a drink in the morning. It's always 5 o'clock somewhere, right? It's always an election year somewhere. And so in a multilateral format, um, it's this year it's in Russia, next year it's in Ukraine, 
then there will be some European country that's involved that will have elections. This was something where at one point, if you, you know, looking at the five plus two, I remember we, we lined up all the stakeholders and, you know, for consecutive years, each had elections. And so if you take that actually as something that can have an impact on the foreign policy and sort of put things on hold or make them want to accelerate or decelerate, that, that matters. Um, so I think it's, you know, no matter what uh, happens, uh, whether a PKO is deployed or not, this is going to be a long slog and there has to be a lot of thought about um, formats. Ah, one more thing, and I apologize for going on a bit. Um, in terms of the format, whether it's the, um, whether it's the TCG, whether it's Normandy, um, whether it's a combination, um, it's essential, and again, this is just from my Moldova experience, um, at one point, um, and this is public, I'm not blowing anybody's cover here, but there have been Moldovan officials who have actually made public statements saying, well, gee, you know, all of those documents we agreed in the 5 plus 2 format, um, they have no force under Moldovan law, uh, which that may be true, and that may be something that everybody at the table talking about those documents understands, but it's not fruitful to say that publicly. And I fear that in Ukraine you might have similar, um, I want to say gaming, but just a, a kind of, kind of um, spoilers being able to inject doubt uh, into whatever uh, process emerges around the... Uh, the, the, the nitty-gritty. I mean, the devil is in the details with special status uh, agreements. So um, I think that's uh, something that, it's not necessarily something that could be spelled out in the um, you know, resolution authorizing the PKO, but it's certainly something that people have to have in mind going in is what, what, how do we wish to use the stability that we hope this, um, this uh, operation will create. So thanks. Thanks, Lyndon, very much. So as we, we move into a discussion, I want to go back a little bit to this first question that you brought up, Richard, about political will. And I think, you know, Ambassador Volker, you, you touched on this as well, but we, we talked largely in terms of political will of Russia. What about the political will in Ukraine? And, you know, again, I think, Lyndon, you brought up the Lugansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's <coughs> Republic. How much... Do, do all three of you see political will within the LNR and DNR being something that's important? To what degree does Russia <coughs> have full control over what happens inside? Or, you know, as we've seen with a, a kind of coup d'etat where the Donetsk People's Republic seemed to take over the government of the Lugansk People's Republic, there's a lot of chaos going on inside of both of these breakaway regions. What about political will there and in, in Ukraine itself? Richard, we'll start with you. Um, just before I answer that question, I'd like to um, support what the others said about the importance of the OSCE. I didn't refer to it, but um, I think it is worth keeping in mind that the UN um, has virtually no Russia expertise and virtually no Ukraine expertise, and so the OSCE would be uh, needed to provide that. Um, and also, in all these discussions of future peace operation formats, we should never do anything that endangers the limited but very important role of the current um, special monitoring mission in Ukraine. Um, in the old Crosby-Stills National Young argument, um, <laughs> If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. So we need to <laughs> as much support as we can until an alternative format is possible. Um, 
on this question of political will, uh, I don't know. I mean, there is a very wide range of views on what would happen if Russia pulled out its command and control um, apparatus from uh, DNR and LNR. We don't know if the local forces would simply fragment. Um, fragmentation could be very dangerous because it could throw up spoiler groups um, who are willing to fight to the last. Um, or, as I think you were suggesting, it is possible that um, the local political actors would still hold together. Um, this relates to my very final point in the presentation, which is we have to think of reconciliation with the majority of local political actors in the Donbass. Um, there are figures who are politically unacceptable to work with, and it will be necessary to do some cleaning out. But there is, um, you know, there is a need for a long-term political reconciliation process, um, which goes way beyond the initial peacekeeping deployment. Kurt, right. Thank you. Um, let me uh, address the questions that you've raised, um, and then two others as well. Well, one other really. Um, but first off, on um, political will from uh, Ukraine towards implementing Minsk, including special status. Um, you've seen the RADA pass legislation already that offers a special status to Eastern Ukraine and recently renewed in October. So that's already on the table. There's a clear willingness to do that. They've also passed legislation on amnesty but it's sitting on the president's desk unsigned because there is no ceasefire, no containment of heavy weapons, no security. So they're hoping to get some reciprocity from the Russian, Russian side uh, to move ahead on things. Um, the um, other piece of, that's critical for Minsk implementation is local elections. Ukraine has local elections all the time throughout the entire country, except in the Donbas because it can't access the Donbas. And as soon as there is an opportunity for there to be security and the ability to hold local elections, Ukraine would like to have them. So I think the will on the Ukrainian side is there. Now I will, I will caveat that by saying it is hard to maintain in Ukraine the political will to keep making steps like this when there's nothing on the other side. And uh, that is politically difficult generally, and I think increasingly difficult when you start, st people start positioning themselves for elections, which is gonna happen over the next year. Um, but that being said, it's doable. And I think in a context where Russia is getting its forces out and where peacekeeping forces come in, it's clear the territory is going to be restored, um, then I think it creates a context in which you could continue to take these steps. Second, um, the so-called Luhansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic are uh, entities created by Russia to create a political fact on the ground to help mask Russia's role and cement an ongoing conflict. And they need to be disbanded. There, there's no place for them in Ukraine's constitutional order. Uh, what the Minsk agreements are about is the restoration of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And these entities have to go away. We can entertain questions about timing and transition, but there can't be any ambiguity that they have no place in eastern Ukraine. And they essentially function um, as um, 
you know, local, local warlords uh, engaged mostly in um, you know black market profiteering. It's, it's a money making enterprise. Um, to the embarrassment of Russia, <laughs> among others. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the, that's, so that's point two. Point three is the local population. Uh, Heather mentioned the episode in, I believe it was early December, might have been late November, when the, um, a, a decision was made, presumably in Moscow, to remove the head of the president of the Luhansk People's Republic, using the forces of the Donetsk People's Republic, which are, of course, Russian-led as well. And not a peep was heard from the local population, mm-hmm. which is an indicator to me of just how attached they are to these entities. Um, <laughs> there, there is no buy-in whatsoever. Now, I, uh, clearly, there is no love for the government in Kyiv in, in the local population there, partly because of disinformation that they get, and partly because, frankly, Ukraine could and should be doing a better job of reaching out to them and trying to show that they care about them as Ukrainian citizens. Um, so there is a skepticism there. But there's no love for the local entities, and now a resentment of Russia because everything is, is a mess in, in these territories. Uh, they went from being a relatively prosperous Rust Belt to a now really beaten up Rust Belt. Um, And then a a final point I wanted to come back to uh, is the importance of the international border. Um, It's not enough to say that OSC monitors can keep an eye on it. Uh, A peacekeeping force needs to be able to have permanent access and, and control, not close, but control of the Ukrainian side of the international border. And that's because right now there is unfettered movement of troops and military equipment back and forth from Russia in and out of, of Donbass. Um, as if Russia decides to get out, it's going to need to be able to use that space to get out. But we don't want to see this continued movement of troops and equipment back and forth. So there needs to be a permanent monitoring and control of this. And so I think a peacekeeping force needs to be there and, and essentially play a deterrent function for the border being used that way in the future. So I want to ask all three of you about something that you all mentioned in different ways. And we're talking about the facts on the ground. If we have political will for a monitoring mission, if the local population is is good with the idea of getting rid of their current overlords and and, and reintegrating within, within Ukraine, what kind of composition should any peacekeeping force have? Richard, you know, as you said, you, the Swedes have shown some interest in this. One of the other countries that you mentioned in your report as a potential contributor to a peacekeeping mission is Belarus. And while President Lukashenko has said that they may in fact be interested in doing something like that, I've, you've also seen the Ukrainian government come out and say, absolutely not. We're not interested in having any member of the CSTO be part of any kind of peacekeeping organization or or peacekeeping mission because they are de facto allies of Russia. Russia, for its part, is not interested in having members of NATO be part of that peacekeeping force, potentially even members of the EU. So, So how do we square this circle, find a way to get peacekeepers who have relevant experience, can work in this particular environment and climate, and do so even though they will likely not have 
the, the necessary Russian language skills. I think the, the one that does seem to make sense to me is Mongolia, where there is some Russian uh, language skills still left over from, from their old Soviet affiliation. But, but how, how do we make this work when everyone has so many objections to the other? Richard? I think this is actually the, um, the hardest part of the, uh, of the planning process, at least in um, military terms. I mean, to be blunt, a mission of this type would need um, a strong core of countries um, that could provide command and control and also could show leadership in taking robust action. And I do think that the, the only credible candidates for that role are the Nordic countries. But I appreciate that for the Swedes, and I think especially for the Finns, that is a, uh, you know, uh, something to be a bit nervous about. Mm -hmm. And I think that Stockholm and Helsinki would need extremely strong um, uh, guarantees from Russia before they put their people at the core of a mission. Now, if the Nordics are at the core of the mission, um, you can start to build uh, around them. Um, I think that it would be a bargaining process, as Ambassador Volker suggested, by which you would have to have some CSTO uh, members in there. Um, but to balance that, you would have some NATO members. Not France, not the UK, um, but possibly Greece, um, you could imagine Bulgaria, uh, Portugal has been mentioned, uh, perhaps because the current UN leader is, is Portuguese. And these countries could provide both troops and um, police. But that is something that would need very, very detailed negotiations with Russia once Russia had made the basic political decision to allow a mission to happen. You can supplement those with, yes, Mongolia. Um, Latin American troops actually participated in Bosnia under NATO command in the late 1990s, and they're good. Um, the Latin Americans have taken on tough urban operations in places like Haiti, um, and actually I think they would potentially be willing to go to, to the Donbass too. Um, but setting up a peacekeeping force is always a, a painful process of balance and compromise, and that will be especially true in this case. Lyndon, I, I'd like to get a little bit of a different take from you. Because the OSCE, where you worked for so long, it does include countries that are both members of the CSTO and NATO. You've mm -hmm. got Kazakhstan in there. You've mm -hmm. got Russia. You've mm -hmm. got um, France and Germany. How did that work on the ground? And is, do you see any possibility for, for doing a similar model in a peacekeeping mission? I think it. Uh, it can work in the OSCE because, precisely because the OSCE's um, uh, capacities are so circumscribed and limited. So the OSCE, unlike the UN, does not have uh, career professionals. The OSCE um, does not even is not even a legal entity, um, right? So so it's a conference still, um, and so it is. It was a fantastic uh, tool, and it was actually a um, a real, I would say, something of a rebirth for the organization to take on the um, mission that the SMMU has taken on, which has been, uh, which, by the way, at the outset was supposed to be a civilian monitoring mission, 
um, and then on the fly had to be reconfigured into something that was taking place in a war zone. So the folks who have been there, um, including some of them who have been there from the very beginning, um, you know, hats off to them for handling that, you know, all the, all the challenges. Uh, the question of the presence of, for example, Russians and Americans, um, it's, it's fraught even in, in that context. Um, although, you know, folks, you know, everybody does coexist. Um, I, I mentioned earlier um, Moldovans, and it's a very, it's a very small uh, country, obviously, and, uh, one that I know particularly well, and it's a, it's a small, um, they have a, a limited ability to deliver numbers of people. However, they do have folks who have participated in international peacekeeping operations, and uh, I mentioned them because actually in the, in the SMMU, um, there, there, there is a fairly substantial Moldovan participation, and they've been um, you know, quite good about not, um, you know, interacting just fine with locals on either side and not, um, you know, displaying a particular, uh, uh, you know, preference or, or, or um, you know, raise, ruffling anybody's feathers um, in that way. Um, I, uh, you know, this is, f f forming UN peacekeeping operations is not, not my area of expertise, but I, I'm curious that Turkey hasn't been mentioned. Um, of course, uh, there's a, there's a, a wonderful Turkish gentleman who um, heads the SMMU and has from the very beginning, uh, and certainly that was a, a strategic decision to have um, the person heading that mission be uh, of that nationality. He's actually somebody with substa substantial UN experience. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe they're just not traditionally a country that's deployed a lot of peacekeepers. Um, but I, again, I don't have a lot of thoughts specifically on the on the the composition issue, other than what I what I said already. Um, it's a challenge. Um, I think if it were to be, I think if it were to be done with um, uh, the the CSTO and NATO countries being Kazakhstan and Bulgaria, it would probably be a manageable challenge. Um, the farther you get from that kind of sort of overlap, um, notional cultural overlap, um, I think you know the more challenges get created. Language is a big deal. Um, we don't we don't like it to be um, because we don't have very good capabilities in that area anymore. Um, but it's a big deal. Ambassador Volker, your take on this? Well, um, if Lyndon can quote uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, I will quote the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you can't always get what you want. <laughs> sometimes you might find you get what you need. So what do we need? Uh, you need a sufficient number of military forces to create area security and, and create space and time. Uh, because this only ever happens if Russia has made a decision that is, it wants to see the transition. And in that situation, it's really uh, an implementation function. Um, you just need some, some capable forces there to help carry it through. All right. And, um, you know, so I want to move on. And I, I, I feel like it's, it's difficult to discuss some of the particulars of how a peacekeeping mission might come up when we still haven't moved past the question of political will and having a, a, an actual decision on this. But what we do have are feelers. We have some indication that there is interest in, in, in moving on. And I, you know, I, I was very interested, Richard, in the way that you structured this report Yes, the political will has to come first. Yes, we have to get past all of that. And then there's all of the nitty-gritty of putting together 
that operation. But how do you determine what is actually needed in Donbass? You mentioned a wide array of things. Of course, the goal is to implement the Minsk II Accords to reunite Donbass with Ukraine. But what are the actual pieces of that that we need to think about in putting together? You've mentioned policing. You've mentioned um, reintegration of people who are currently working for the so administrations of these so-called regions. What else should the UN or any peacekeeping operation be involved in? Lyndon mentioned things like banking, uh, getting pensions back online, making sure that individuals are, are getting the heating that they need in their houses and social services are being restored. What role does the UN actually have in doing all of that? Or does the UN help restore the peace and then once control is restored to Ukraine, the Ukrainians take care of that? What's the proper balance here? I mean, my take is that the one thing that no one wants is for this to turn into a 10 to 15 year mission. Yeah. I mean, no, no one wants this to be an endless operation. And, you know, I'm, we can quibble about the exact timelines, but it seems to me that what the UN can do is provide, <coughs> could do, um, an international security presence probably of two to three years. So you get to the elections, but then you would need, you would need an international presence for one or two years after the elections. Um, I think we need to distinguish that um, from a lot of what uh, Lyndon was talking about, which is much, much longer term um, reconciliation and reconstruction processes. Now, UN agencies could be involved in that. Mm -hmm. um, and multilateral agencies like the World Bank um, would uh, also have a leading role in it. Um, and that could take five years, 10 years, 15 years. But my sense is that uh, the, the UN bit is the hard stuff right at the start. And then once um, the peace operation has met its initial goals, uh, you need actors like the bank to work with the Ukrainian authorities on a much longer term um, process of, of rehabilitation. Um, and I don't actually think that the UN, uh, UN peace operations are very good at a lot of that longer term stuff. And there are other actors like the bank or indeed the OSCE that could um, play that role better. Let me make one point about the early phase, though, which is, I think, as important as some of the troops uh, is that a UN mission needs really good leadership. And you're going to need some uh, very strong uh, special representative of Antonio Guterres to really push this process through and try and get over some of the obstacles that we all agree will arise. And, and one quick follow-up question on that. How, you know, for those of us who aren't UN experts, how successful has the UN been in really putting a mission in for two or three years and being able to complete that mission within the, the given time frame? It doesn't have an amazingly good track record, to be honest. Um, and we have seen missions, uh, especially some of the current generation of missions in Africa, drag on for far longer than anyone expected. 
when I was uh, working on the report, I did look back, though, to an older model, which is Croatia in the 1990s. And after the end of the Balkan Wars, um, the UN ran a two-year mission, um, very, very time-limited, uh, to help reintegrate um, Serb-held areas of eastern Croatia back under Zagreb's control. And it managed to do that reasonably well in 18 months. So we should look back to models like that rather than current models such as South Sudan, which are not, uh, shall we say, um, blueprints for anything. So, so Lyndon and Kurt, I saw you both uh, vociferously nodding when Richard mentioned the importance of a strong leader yes. of any potential UN mission. Why, why, why do you feel strongly about that? Some, somebody has to maintain whatever momentum is created by the uh, deployment of the PKO, um, because otherwise you risk, I mean, for, for me, um, you know, and again, my perspective is, is having worked on a um, very long-running uh, process where um, there, is, uh, there is not such a figure, and there really isn't a position in the sort of uh, you know, array of official negotiation formats around Moldova-Transnistria to, to drive that process. But, I, but I, it, it's definitely shown me the, the great need for that. Um, I think you know, one, thing, one thing that is, is um, important also to consider is that this costs, right? Uh, not just deploying the operation in an era where the US is questioning its commitment to the UN, but reintegration itself and making the case to the people who still live in Donbass, absolutely, there's a case to be made, absolutely. Um, they may be indifferent to the current sort of um, flags that fly there. Uh, but um, I don't know if this is the case there. Uh, it is the case in some other places. Um, if they are receiving, for example, um, heating services that are five times cheaper than their folks across the line of contact and their pensioners, and that matters for them, um, then that's going to have to be someone's going to have to make them whole, all right? And that somebody will have to be either uh, the Ukrainian government or international partners of some kind. So these, these local um, motivations, I would also just say, I mean, they may be warlords, they may be profiteers, uh, they may embarrass Russia. The Transnistrian leadership has done that successfully <laughs> for many years. I, I, mean, I mean, with that, again, joking aside, um, and, uh, you know, and, and not taking away from any of the folks uh, involved in their negotiating effort. But, uh, you know, in reality, th that uh, place has survived thanks to its proximity to the port of Odessa uh, and to the uh, incredibly creative array of um, uh, money-making and rent-seeking uh, opportunities that people have discovered around that. And, and Donbass is larger, um, has more stuff actually there of its own, rather than just being a transit zone, although it is also that. Um, and so <clears throat> the opportunities are quite large. Then you get into a situation where folks have um, accumulated some resources, uh, these folks on the ground. And if they dislike the decision that, that Moscow may take, um, then they may lobby there, here, anywhere. Money moves, and it can you know, influence people's thinking uh, on political decisions. So I think it's, we really can't, um, we can't deny the fact of uh, 
folks with agency and resources. They may not profoundly believe in the ideas of those notional flags that exist there, but they may take um, creative non uh, steps to survive that are not in the traditional military realm and are therefore not necessarily addressed by a traditional you know, armed peacekeeping operation. Ambassador Volker, how would you, how would the US government look at leadership of any kind of mission? Would this person or the, the, or the way that uh, the leadership is organized, would they be in constant touch with the Ukrainian government, with the Russian government, with local authorities? And what kind of mandate would you like to see that person or organization potentially be given? So um, there's two aspects to leadership. There is the leadership of a peacekeeping operation, and there is the civilian leadership of a special representative of the Secretary General. Um, the risk is that when you start implementing, new things come up, unforeseen circumstances, actors create ambiguity, mm -hmm. there's some lack of clarity. That's why you need strong leadership to say, nope, it's clear, and we are doing this. Um, and you, you need to have resolve and capacity and direction. And that's what you need strong leadership for, both on the civilian and the military side. Um, and to your question, yes, the civilian leadership should be in touch with everybody, should be constantly communicating, but with that perspective, that I have this mandate from the United Nations Security Council, and I am going to implement that mandate. Uh, and so you're going to help make that happen. Um, that, that's what I think. And it's important that it be um, someone that's going to have credibility uh, across the board, uh, whether it's the US and the West, or whether it's Russia, or whether it's the UN organization, or, or the Ukrainians, someone is going to have uh, very strong credibility in that system. Once we do get a mission, and I, I, hope we're, I hope we're on the path to that, where we're here sitting and talking about it, which is far better than we were doing a year ago. So I, I do continue to have hope. But Richard, you, you sort of, in the paper, move a little bit further to say, OK, once we get a mission, what else do we need to have? And one of the things you mentioned in your presentation today is this long-term civilian presence. Can I jump in on that? Please. Because that, that was a point that I, I wanted to answer earlier and we didn't come by. We have to remember, Ukraine is not a basket case. Uh, Ukraine is a pretty well-functioning country with a very developed economy. That, yeah, it has corruption problems and other problems, but it's doing pretty well. And a lot of the things that people are concerned about, like getting their cell phone service restored and getting their utilities repaired, Ukraine is perfectly capable of doing. The problem is not the Ukrainians' ability, the problem is the conflict. Right. So if you stop the conflict and create security, you don't need a UN or an international civilian administration to do these things. You just need to get the conflict out of the way. Well, and that, that was going to be my question. I mean, it, we're talking here about getting, getting regular life back in order. And is there a role for the UN there, you all seem to say no, but is there a role for the World Bank, the IMF, um, the, the US Bar Association for international organizations to come in afterwards and work on all of these issues? Is that what we should be doing next? And you know, Lyndon, I'd also be interested to hear if you think the OSCE should remain there 
or if it should should pull out once this this issue is done. Well, um, I'll I'll take the last thing you asked first. Obviously, that's a decision for the 57 <laughs> participating states. Um, but uh, I think the function of that mission in providing daily public reporting, um, uh, kind of political uh, monitoring from the ground, uh, I'm not sure that's something that the UN that any UN operation would take over. Um, so there, you know. There, there may be ways in which um, there is overlap, but I think there's also ways in which, uh, in which SMMU's current role would, would not be fulfilled by an armed um, peacekeeping mission. Uh, regarding the, the question about role for international organizations um, afterwards and, and Ukraine's um, capacity to fix, fix things and sort of remediate um, post-conflict damage, I think it's important to have uh, international organizations involved for two reasons. One, somebody has to pay for it. Two, um, well, candidly, and, um, and this, is, and, and this is a, goes to a point that, that the report does make about reconciliation. Um, what you risk having is a situation where, yes, there is security. Yes, nobody's going in and doing reprisal attacks. But um, you know, the roads in the formerly non-government controlled areas just aren't repaired as fast as other roads. And the resources that the Ukrainian state has are not deployed um, with as much vigor to those areas because of you know lingering feelings of we don't like those folks, um, and that's a perfectly human uh, post-conflict situation. Uh, and I think the presence of internationals uh, to just sort of remind folks, keep them on task, and saying, hey, look, this is uh, aid that's been allocated for this area. Um, it needs to reach that area and not be diverted, even though we understand that um, perhaps uh, you know folks in the um, parts of Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast that have always been controlled by the government are also suffering and need the roads built. You know, there, there's earmarked assistance for these folks. One one other point I'd I just make from from the experience in uh, uh, in Transnistria, and I and I'm not going back to it. I'm going back to it because it's what I know, not necessarily because I think it maps perfectly on. Obviously, the geography alone makes it a very different situation. But I think there are a lot of important lessons to be taken from that context. And one of them is, if you do, for whatever reason, have a situation where you have a PKO uh, and, a lot, and, a, and a, some kind of a division that continues for a period of time, um, th there's a risk of aid that is earmarked at doing confidence building across the line being kind of used to simply make life better on one side and on the other side and not having the linking uh, role. So um, the, the, the issue with this, as with a lot of other things, is the folks who are implementing this really need to, to have a high degree of capacity and commitment. Uh, and you know, if you have uh, kind of international civil servants it's a very mixed bag. Uh, folks may be rotating in for, I mean, and again, not to take any way, anything away, and with all due respect to the folks who, um, you know, uh, I was one of them, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it's, a tough, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough role to find um, folks who are going to suit up every day and fight that fight, which is, no, really, you must assist these people, even though a year ago they were fighting to not be part of your country. Um, that's, that's hard. Um, so I don't think we should, um, you know, downplay the challenges that, that, that will exist, um, you know, after uh, security is restored. 
No, it's certainly a difficult challenge, and I think one, Richard, that, that you focus on a little bit in the paper and make sure you put out there that it is really important to make sure that when there has been such a situation in a country like Ukraine, it is a difficult thing to do the reintegration. Reintegration takes an awful lot of hard work, mm -hmm. and it is going to be a slog. It is going to be difficult, and human nature sometimes dictates that those things are going to be more difficult than those of us who, who sit here in Washington and analyze things think that they should be. Um, we do have a little bit of time for just a few questions. I'll ask our, our friends with the microphones if they would make their way. Uh, I'm going to ask that you introduce yourself, keep your question very brief, and please have a question mark at the actual end of that question. Uh, we're going to, because Kastud is here in the front. Thank you. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. <clears throat> I'm from members of Lithuania. Uh, my question would be to Ambassador Volker. You mentioned that uh, this time this PKO might work because there is kind of Minsk agreements already. But how does it look in practice? I mean, does UN mandate should make a reference or take some part of it, or it has a kind of not written reference, but everybody understands that uh, PKO should kind of also make the conditions feasible for the Minsk agreements implementation. So how does it look in practice? Yeah, I, I think it needs to be explicit in the UN Security Council resolution that uh, a peacekeeping force is meant to create area security and to facilitate the implementation of the Minsk agreements. Uh, I, I don't think you can do it separate from that process. It's got to be explicit. Um, and I think that we'll have, there have to be a clear understanding of the timeline of deployment of the force and that the political steps of Minsk implementation need to be coincident with that. Does anyone else want to weigh in? It is just worth saying that the Security Council endorsed Minsk yeah. II in whole. So um, there is already a UN precedent um, and a council resolution that would be the starting point. Um, and that is basically Minsk. Great, thank you. Uh, good morning, all. Uh, my name is Joel Wasserman, and I'm actually moving to Kyiv on Sunday to do humanitarian work with Ukrainian veterans and internal refugees from the Donbass War. And for all the great discussion from well-dressed gentlemen and ladies here in Washington and even in Kyiv, there's a whole lot of frustration there about the lack of political w will to either simply win the war and a serious lack of trust in the Ukrainian government or from us well-meaning Westerners to settle the uh, conflict in a way that recognizes their interests and sacrifices. And I want to know what message I can bring from you folks to Ukrainians who have been offering their blood, toil, tears, and sweat, et cetera, uh, on the ground about your vision for peace and what us uh, good folks in suits can do about the cause that they fought for. Wants to go first. I'd like one message I'd urge you to convey to them. Russia has over 100,000 forces surrounding Ukraine and over 800 tanks in the Donbass, and there is no winning the war. Uh, what we have to do is get an agreement to end it and to get the Russians out, which is what we're all working on. But it's a delusion to think that, that Ukraine is going to be able to fight and take this territory back if Russia doesn't want them to. Uh, I can only co-sign that. Um, this is, this is uh, not a war that's going to be won uh, on the battlefield. Um, and, uh, you know, I think folks need to think about what it is that 
they've been fighting for, which is a peaceful, stable Ukraine, uh, which can be a home to all of its citizens. Um, and what that means is when peace is restored, um, not going in with, uh, well, this is discussed in the report. And what it, what it means is flexibility on language issues, um, various things like that that, are, that, are, that a lot of folks are not big fans of, but that go a long way with hearts and minds. Um, and so I think, um, but I think the main point is, um, you know, the, the, the fight needs to be taken uh, really to creative solutions, uh, to getting peace and then winning that peace. Richard, anything to add? No, I mean, look, a peace operation is going to be entirely popular with no one. And <laughs> since I published this report, I have been abused roundly um, by both Ukrainians and Russians <laughs> on social media. It's unfortunate that Govno is the Russian for poo, which means that Govan <laughs> is Mr. Poo, um, as is frequently pointed out to me um, via, via Twitter. Look, I think this is a situation where a bargain unlocks um, Ukraine's broader progress, and I think that it is a tough choice to make, but I think it's a choice worth making. Yeah. Other questions? Here in the front. Katya Sudova, Georgetown University. Uh, thank you for this great panel. Um, I have two questions, and uh, any combination of you could answer any of them. One is the challenge of reconciliation. I think you alluded to that, that security being what it is, we're looking at um, a lot of work that UN international institutions will have to do to uh, repair the damage that Moscow's choices have done. Um, so maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. And my second question is, we seemingly, in a matter of 24 hours, have seen a rapid deterioration of U.S.-Russian uh, relations, with the invincible missiles being announced, with our own nuclear posture reviews, uh, and where it starts, where it ends, is remains to be an interesting issue. But um, Ambassador Volko, can you speak a little bit on whether that changes some of the leverage and the difficulty of tasks that you have before you? Well, I'll, can I answer yeah, the second please, one please. first? Um, I think that um, the problem is not that there's been a confrontation with Russia. The problem is that there hasn't been. And as a result, Russia has felt that it could do things like take Crimea, go into eastern Ukraine, and there's no consequence. And so there's no reason for Russia to reconsider. And I think uh, while it is unpleasant to see this kind of jostling and escalation between the diplomatic uh, disputes of shutting down, you know, 600, throwing out 600 of our diplomats or shutting down San Francisco for the Russians or uh, very, very dangerous actions by the Russians in Syria, um, nonetheless, this may be necessary to, for Russia to come to terms with the fact it's gonna have to make some adjustments. Um, I, I would just uh, offer two things on that, one of, wh one of which is if you look at how um, the situation played out um, when um, the paramilitaries were forced to retreat from some of the cities that they had initially held um, by the Ukrainians, there was some scorched earth tactics undertaken. 
And so uh, I think you know you would you would have to think about what might happen uh, in the event that there is a an actual decision. Um, Russia withdraws. Would there be additional damage done, even beyond what's already been done, to the facilities and infrastructure, which could raise the costs of um, of rebuilding uh, and make it that much more difficult? Um, regarding the the speech, I was actually going to say that in in my intro piece, which is talking about, you know, I think international cooperation is in the title of this panel, which is something that, of course, we can all uh, happily agree on in the abstract. Um, in reality, I think it remains to be seen uh, the degree to which that speech was, uh, you know, it was obviously a message for uh, folks in this town and in other uh, Western capitals, but it was also an election, uh, you know, a campaign speech. Um, so, so that's important to note. Also, I would say, I mean, whatever the miracle missiles are, um, USMD was never designed to stop uh, uh, nuclear confrontation with Russia. And so, um, in a way, it, this just refocuses us on something that everybody in the 1980s, when there were proxy wars, was keenly aware of, which is that taking it to its logical end is not really a place that anybody wants to go. Um, so that's, yeah, that's all I had on that. <laughs> Richard, particularly on this reconciliation question, which I think is an interesting one, you know, early in the conflict, there the the LNR and DNR and the the fighters had taken some Ukrainian cities, and Ukraine took some of those back. I was um, a year or two ago in Kramatorsk and Slavyansk in some of these cities that had been at one time underneath these rebel-held areas and had been returned to Ukrainian control. And there had been some, some serious efforts undertaken. But does the, does the amount of time that a town or a place or a person spends out from underneath Ukrainian control, does that make a difference in how we should approach reconciliation efforts? Look, I think on, on reconciliation, I would just come back to um, uh, something we discussed quite a lot in the last 20 minutes or so, which is services. What we know from other post-conflict situations is that when people start seeing their ele electricity being on, when the water is running, when there is some economic life, most people buy into that. Um, now, peace operations sometimes fail because they um, are unable to get services going again. But I, I do think that, you know, Long-term, deep political reconciliation in the Donbass will be awfully, awfully hard. Mm -hmm. But actors like the World Bank can make day-to-day -day life easier by, by really investing early and investing in a sustained way in, in services in the region. And that, that's the key to hearts and minds. Final comments from you, gentlemen. Don't ever forget that it's still a hot war. I mean, people are getting killed every week. Uh, so we, we can't just treat this as, you know, it goes on all the time. Frozen conflict. Frozen conflict. Like it's, you know, it's out there. It's urgent. It's truly urgent. Mm -hmm. Lyndon, final remarks. Um, this is a fantastic thing to be talking about, and I hope that uh, in some shape or form uh, the concept goes forward. Um, as I've tried to underscore... Uh, my life experience has taught me that if this goes forward, it will be extremely difficult. It will be fraught with pitfalls, and it will require a lot of sustained attention and resources at every level. So that's high-level bandwidth here in Washington and in other Western capitals, um, because rest assured that on the other side, there's high-level attention to it on a daily basis. 
um, this is really important, and 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 um, you know this is the challenge that I think you face. Uh, one of one of the many, um, and also yes, services and and resources. So if you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, for example, in Washington D.C., you can be serviced in any of something like nine languages, right? Why is it that we're able to do that and be inclusive? Well, it's because we spend money on it. Um, and so, again, the role of the internationals can be and should be to say, hey, um, when the reconstruction is happening, and obviously you have more of a voice if you're providing some of the money, do some of those things. Um, go the extra mile. Um, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, you're, the, you're the recognized sovereign. Um, and, and it's very, very hard. That's a very, very hard thing to do. Uh, and I recognize that for people who have been you know, in conflict with their state sovereignty challenge. It's very hard, but it's, it's uh, going to be essential for the reconciliation. Richard, we give you the last word. Would this operation be extremely difficult? Yes, absolutely. Um, is it hard to see how it works in the current geostrategic environment? Also, yes. But frankly, as someone who sits in New York, watches the Security Council, my sense is that the future of international stabilization is actually going to be increasingly about putting missions in these flashpoints mm -hmm. between major powers to, to help de-escalate them. So what we're talking about is not just relevant to Ukraine, but actually um, our longer-term thinking about the future of crisis management. One last point. Uh, Lyndon mentioned West Virginia. Um, I once, in a light-hearted mood, did an analysis of what a UN force trying to take over Texas Fantastic. would look like. Which is something that seems to come up in Texas politics now and again. <laughs> I calculated that the UN would last two and a half days in Texas before it <laughs> fell apart. So compared to that, the Donbass will be easy. <laughs> Please join me in thanking our panel. <laughs> Thanks, that was great.